verses 27 to 30. Um, I read a bit more for context. Um, and as many of you know, um, I am currently studying at seminary. And the great thing about being a seminary is, you know, you're around a lot of people who are constantly reading scripture. And usually when you talk about uh, the sermon that you're about to preach, um, people are asking, oh, so what are you preaching on? And you say, oh, you know, I'm preaching from Philippians 1, 27 to 30. You know, usually people have a kind of, oh, I, I know that passage. Um, and, you know, what do you think of this? Um, but the funny thing with this passage was, every time I chatted to one of my friends, they, they just had this sort of brief look of, huh, I, I'm not too sure what that passage is about in their, mind, in, in their face. And the reason really is, um, I think anyways, that in Philippians, you've got this amazing bit from Paul in verses 19 to 26, where Paul tells us of, you know, um, you know to die is gain, because if he dies, he can go to heaven and spend eternity with this God, with the Lord Jesus. But nonetheless, he, he wants to remain on this earth to continue to serve Christ's church because he's more needed here so that the name of Jesus will be better known through his ministry on earth. And then you've got this bit where in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, he's, he's talking about how you know, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, you know, there's this grand rhetoric. And this tiny bit in verse 27 to 30 is kind of sandwiched between these two amazing deep truths about God and of sort of Paul's heart for God's people. But the interesting thing is, when we look at 27, how does it begin? Only. In other words, above all. That's how he opens up this little section here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, as important as all the other things that he had just talked about in verses 19 to 27, as, as important as all those things were, the one thing that he wanted the, the, the congregation in, in Philippi and therefore us today, the one thing he wanted us to take home in, in, in light of all those things is in these three verses. Now, our translation could have just as easily have read, most importantly, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in spite of suffering. And in our passage today, we're going to see that living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is this. To live faithfully and fearlessly in spite of suffering, knowing that it has been granted to us by God to live in this way. And we'll see it in the following three points. So firstly, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is lived in faithful unity with other Christians. Uh, secondly, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a sign of the fate of destruction and salvation. And thirdly, we can, lo- we can live faithfully and fearlessly in spite of suffering because it has been granted to us by God. So firstly then, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is lived fearlessly and faithfully in unity with other Christians. And we see this really clearly in verse 27, don't we? Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul here asks us to stand firm. In other words, he asks us to be firmly committed in the convictions of our faith. This is not an easy thing to do. It was not an easy thing to do. Now, 2,000 years ago in Philippi, where Christians were ostracized from their communities for not participating in pagan rituals, and sometimes even jailed for refusing to do these things. It's a difficult thing to do now in our increasingly secular society, um, where we're seeing an increased hostility towards Christians and the ethics that we hold to. We are seeing Christians lose their jobs for standing up for their faith. And that's not to even mention some of the worst persecutions um, that our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world suffer. Our ability to stand firm, however, does not come from any innate strength. Rather, we're told by Paul that our strength for standing firm comes from the one spirit that we as Christians all share with one another. And this spirit is none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity himself. Now, if it is this Holy Spirit, if it is the third person of Trinity who is working in us as a church to stand firm for the faith in the face of opposition, she that tells us that we have been infinitely empowered to do so. God is, after all, omnipotent. That is to say that he's all-powerful. And if he is all-powerful, surely then he can give us all power to stand firm in the faith. Now, not only does Paul tell us to stand firm, he tells us that we should strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. So not only should we ourselves be firmly convinced of the gospel, we should be proactive in sharing it with the people around us, striving for the sake of the gospel. And we're not to do these things on our own. We're not standing firm and striving for the gospel alone. We're standing firm with one another and with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. If we have good brothers and sisters in Christ around us, helping us to stand firm in the faith, striving together for the gospel, and all of us together empowered by the Holy Spirit, none of us have anything to fear. After all, if God is for us, Who can be against us? And so just imagine for a second that we're an army in this room. We're at war against the enemies. They've rushed us. And here we are. We have locked shields and one spirit working in us. We withstand them pressing against us. And then the order comes from the general to to advance into the enemy territory. And still empowered by that same spirit... We strive step by step into enemy territory with one goal in mind, to contend for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what does that mean for us today then? Well, minimally, it must mean that for those of us who are Christians, who have experienced the full grace of the redemption from Christ, we should be keen to be fully committed to the Christian faith and be sharing with other people. That's plain, isn't it? But perhaps today you feel keenly the weakness of your faith. You feel the strain of the society's pressure on you, whether that's from your family or your friends or at work. You feel the temptation to leave the faith. 
Well, the first thing to say is that we're here for you. As a group of God's people, as those who share the one spirit of God with you, we're the people with whom you can come alongside. You can come together and we can lock shields together and withstand that pressure together. Not only that, remember that it is the Holy Spirit himself that is empowering all of us to do so. And so you can stand firm and you can strive even when you feel powerless in your own power to do so if you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you struggle to share your faith with other people, your co-workers, your fellow students, the mums that you go to the library um, to take your kids swimming with, um, or the neighbors that you've known for like 40 years who have never heard the gospel from you. We, as a group of God's people, we are supposed to work as a team to strive for the gospel. And so maybe consider introducing them to other Christians. Better yet, invite them to church. Better yet, invite them to the Christmas service that we have leaflets for. Invite them to church. Let them hear the gospel proclaimed. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit to change hearts. And we can do these things fearlessly in unity with one another and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are only really two groups of people in the world. There are those who are Christians and there are those who are opposed to Christianity. Now, for some people, their opposition to the gospel or Christianity is really obvious. But for some, perhaps less so. Perhaps you're not a Christian today and you feel like though you're not, you're not a Christian, you're not really opposed to it. It's fine for other people, you just don't want to believe it for yourself yet. But actually in you not believing it yourself, you have made the judgment that it's not for you. And so in reality, you are opposed to it just for yourself, not for other people. Now, if you are opposed to Christianity, whether it is violently in every way and in every form for everyone, or whether you're just quietly opposed to Christianity for yourself, I wonder what you make of the fact that Christians seem to be able to stand fearlessly firm and strive for the gospel, even in the face of persecution. And so now we're on to our second point. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a sign of the fate of destruction and salvation. Um, It's just fact, isn't it? That around the world, Christians are being persecuted. Uh, Recently, the UN um, finally recognized that the Christians are the most persecuted religious minority in the world. And yet, people continue to... fiercely stand firm in the faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They continue to strive for the gospel. They continue to share the gospel with the people who do not believe, even when they're faced with ridicule, persecution, and even possibly the loss of their lives. Recently in the news, uh, we hear about an American missionary called John Allen Chow. Um, who was killed by the Sentinelese people in India um, whilst he was trying to reach them with the gospel. And yes, you know, we, we can have all kinds of opinions and thoughts about his approach 
and even the legality of what he was doing. Because after all, that group of people were protected under Indian law against foreigners going in because they lack immunity against modern diseases and to protect their way of life. But whatever you think of his approach, whatever we might think of the legality of what he tried to do, we're still faced with one question. Why would a 26-year-old, seemingly bright young man, choose to risk his life in this way? It's a mystery why anyone would do this, isn't it? Especially when you consider the fact that John Allen Chow isn't exactly an isolated figure. Throughout history, missionaries have risked their lives. Many have even lost their lives trying to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with people who have never heard about him before. Why do people do this? And the thing is, that indeed is a mystery if we do not have a fuller appreciation of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus for eternal life. By nature, all of us are sinners, and we've all sinned. We have all done things that we shouldn't have done, and we have all not done things that we should have done. And we have all rebelled against God. None of us have listened to his voice. By nature, all of us deserve eternal damnation in hell, being punished for our rebellion against him. And yet, in his grace, God sent his son to die for our sins. To take them onto himself. God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore the punishment that we deserve. And he has given us his righteousness. So that for anyone who has believed in him, God now sees his son's righteousness rather than our sinfulness. And so through our faith union with Christ, we can look forward to a fate not of eternal punishment, but of eternal bliss and happiness in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the greatest news in the world? Why wouldn't anyone want to hear that news and believe? And yet it's true. People don't want to believe. They don't even want to hear it. They kill the people who come to share that good news with them. They persecute the people who come to share that good news with them. They beat them, they hurt them, they oppose them. They shut their ears towards them. Surely that's a bigger mystery. And surely, by all human standards of morality, killing somebody, beating them, hurting them, because they wanted to talk to you about a good thing, no matter how persistently and no matter how much you don't want to hear it, surely, by all human standards of morality, that's wrong. It's a totally disproportionate use of force. Wouldn't you agree? And yet, that's exactly what's happening the world over right now. That's exactly what's going on. And that's exactly what happened to John Allen Chow. And so we've got to ask the question, what's going on there? And what's going on there is that God is using these instances of violent overreaction to the Christian faith as a sign of the destruction of those who oppose the gospel of Christ. We see that clearly in verse 28. Um, And it acts as a sign of salvation to those who trust and believe in the gospel of Christ. In these violent overreactions, we see the true sinfulness of humankind. And that is a sign to us 
of just how deserving of destruction and eternal damnation we all are. I had one of these experiences myself before I was a Christian. I remember sitting uh, with a group of my friends. Um, most of, all, almost all of them were Christians. Uh, we were just chatting. And I remember that as the conversation turned to Christianity, I got really angry. I couldn't even really understand why, but I got really angry with my Christian friends. And eventually I stormed out um, as the as the conversation turned to Christianity, and I I was just so angry with them. Now, even though I didn't become a Christian until years later, that episode, the, the thing that happened that day, showed me that I was by no means a good person. If I couldn't even sit through a conversation with some well-meaning Christians, and I was so capable of you know, tremendous anger, disdain, and vitriol towards my friends who are just trying to be nice to me. Perhaps I'm not as good a person as I always thought I was. And perhaps, just perhaps, if there was a God, I did deserve eternal damnation, punishment, and destruction. Now, if that one episode all those years ago acted to, as a sign to me of my destruction, and then, then how much more then should the bloody body of a young 26-year-old American missionary who has done nothing more than speak a few words to this group of people act as a sign of the destruction of the people who killed him? And actually, when you read some of the blogs or newspaper articles and comments on, on, on the internet about this episode, about this thing that had happened, huge numbers of people, heartbreakingly huge numbers of people, you know, have written things like, oh, he deserved it. He was an idiot. Why was he there anyways? Christian missionaries are just imperialists. Uh, cultural imperialists trying to impose their values on other people. Relatively few comments have been made along the lines of, oh my goodness, somebody just died. It shows us the skewed morality of the people of this age when the person who is killed for simply talking to people who didn't want to hear is demonized maligned and hated whilst no judgment is passed on the people who killed him. Now, if a life that is lived fearlessly, standing firm and striving for the gospel of Christ, even in the face of tremendous persecution, even unto death, is a sign of the destruction of the unbeliever, surely it's also a sign of the salvation of the people who believe. It shows us the truthfulness of what we believe that we're willing to be obedient even unto death. And clearly, this inner conviction is not manufactured internally. Nobody is capable of manufacturing this kind of strength of conviction. Instead, we know it's from God, as, we, as, as, as it says in the, line, in the last line of verse 28. Now, if you're not a Christian, then I wonder how have you been reacting to your friends who've been trying to share the gospel with you. In the past, what was your reaction when you heard um, them share the gospel with you? 
In fact, what was your reaction when you heard about the story of John Allen Chow? Is it a sign of your destruction? Did it show you the full extent of your sinfulness and of how deserving of eternal punishment you are? Or could it be, could be that it's a sign of your salvation? If you are willing to acknowledge the truthfulness of the Christian faith due to the witnesses of faithful Christians and you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, completely dependent on his grace and mercy for your salvation. Now, so far, we've seen how God gives us internal strength to live fearlessly, standing firm and striving for the God by the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen how living in this way is a God-given sign to those who oppose the gospel as a sign of their destruction and of our salvation. And so we're going on to our third point now, which is that we can live in this way despite suffering because it has been given to us by God. Or to put it the same way as I did at the start of the sermon, we can live faithfully and fearlessly in spite of suffering because it has been granted to us by God. Now, that is a pretty shocking statement, isn't it? God, so we understand him to be, is a God of love, isn't he? Now, I can understand how he would give us internal strength to see through the trials of living a faithful life. I can see how he would give this life as a sign to believers and unbelievers, as one of destruction and the other salvation. But to actually give us suffering, if he loved us, Why would he make us suffer? And yet that's exactly what we've got here in verses 29 to 30. Let's read it again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, to be clear, the kind of suffering that Paul is speaking about here is particularly the suffering which is for the sake of Christ. Now, there are plenty of instances of suffering, and it's true to say that God is providentially in control of all of it, but it's also true to say that sometimes we suffer because we live in a sinful, fallen world. And as a part of that system, Christians and non-Christians alike suffer. We will all experience hardship in work and study. We will all experience illnesses and injuries. We will all experience grief and pain. However, the suffering that Paul is particularly talking about here is the kind of suffering that is suffered for the sake of Christ. And this particular sort of suffering, he says, has been granted to us by God. In fact, it's not even enough to just say that it's been granted to us by God. More accurately, we can say that it's been graciously given by God. How can suffering, how can suffering be a gracious gift? The key to understanding this is really in understanding who our Lord Jesus Christ is and how we're to relate to him. Now, we're told in scripture that the Lord Jesus is the man of sorrow. He was the one who suffered tremendously under the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. His entire life on this world was marked by suffering. 
His family discredited him and his ministry. His friends betrayed him. He was persecuted by the religious authorities. And finally, he was killed, nailed to the cross, the most savage form of any kind of death penalty that ever was by a political authority. The Lord Jesus, then, is the Lord of suffering. And if the Lord Jesus, our Lord, was the Lord, is the Lord of suffering, what a privilege it is, then, for us if we could suffer like him. Because in our suffering for his sake, we follow in his footsteps. And we know more and we experience more of exactly what it is that he has done for us. And we know more and more of his grace and mercy towards us. In fact, Peter, arguably the first apostle, regarded himself as not even worthy to die in the same way as Jesus did. And so allegedly he asked to be crucified upside down. And Paul, similarly, later on in chapter 3, verse 10, talks about how he wishes that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. In other words, then, it is a gracious gift from God that we have the privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ, like Christ, so that we can know him, the power of his resurrection, better and fuller. And what does that mean for us today then? I think for, for a Christian, it is so easy to lose faith when we're suffering, especially when we're suffering for our faith. Now, for those who are perhaps a bit more mature in their faith, the temptation may not be to leave the faith altogether, but rather regard the suffering as something they have to kind of grip their teeth and just get through. Perhaps they're even more mature and they recognize that it's not up to them and their human strength to get through the trial and suffering, but rather it's through the reliance on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is him who will give us the internal strength to see the suffering through. We may even see that there's benefits to the suffering as it provides a sign for the destruction of the unbelievers and the salvation of the, sorry, for the destruction of the unbelievers and the salvation of the believers. But even that's not enough. Here, Paul wants to show us that suffering for our faith is not just something we have to get through, but rather it's a privilege, a privilege that is granted by God, that we can share in the suffering of the Lord Jesus, that we may know him and share in him. As we finish then, live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life that is worthy of the redeeming work of Christ in your life. Live a life that is worthy of the fact that in his death, he has paid for all your sins. Live a life that is worthy of the fact that in his resurrection, you have a sure hope of a future resurrection and a new heavens and a new earth. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, doing so fearlessly standing firm in the faith, striving for the gospel in community with other Christians and empowered by the Holy Spirit. As you do so, this life acts as a sign of the destruction of unbelievers, as it shows up the true sinfulness of humanity as they oppose those who seek to share the gospel with them with more hatred and vitriol 
than it ever deserves. Whilst at the same time, this serves as a sign of the truthfulness of what we believe so that we may be saved by the redeeming blood of Christ. And finally, remember that it is not just that God gives us the internal strength to live through suffering. He gives us this life. He gives us this suffering as a gift, a gracious gift that we may know our Lord Jesus and his redeeming work better. Amen.